Jewish audio on Chabad.org. This part is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad of Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. So, we return to our usual studies. We're in the middle of Pedic Hay, the fifth chapter of Perkyavis, which starts by talking about lots of things that happen in the number of ten. And the focus of today's class is going to be the Beis HaMikdash, the holy temple that stood twice in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount of Harabayus. The first time for 410 years, the second time for 420 years. So the place that Mishkanot, the tabernacles that had previously existed in Givon, in Nov, and in Shiloh, and ultimately the tabernacle that Moshe Rabbeinu built in the desert. But only Yerushalayim was Niskadesh, only the city of Jerusalem, and only the Temple Mount was sanctified in a permanent way. It's Mishnah number 5. So it's chapter 5, Mishnah 5. That would be page number 286. So today's Mishnah talks about miracles that took place in the Beis HaMikdash. And it's interesting to point out that those miracles took place in the number of ten. We explained uh, uh, several times already that the number ten is a number that indicates something fully developed. Because each and every one of us has ten soul powers. And we are all created in the same blueprint. All spiritual worlds are created in this blueprint. And all neshamas and all uh, different forces of creation are created in the blueprint of ten. So we have this notion of ten being a nisbar hashalom, a total, a complete, an absolute number, which indicates that the fact that there were ten miracles in the Beis Hamikdash was not the happenstance. The Mishnah wants to point out that specifically not only were there miracles there, but that those miracles numbered ten, and that obviously there's something that we're supposed to learn from this, and something we're supposed to be inspired by as a result. So let's start to learn the Mishnah. First, we'll learn the Mishnah on a very literal level. And then we'll try to delve into some of the details and the meaning behind the simple facade. There were ten miracles that took place on a regular basis in the Holy Temple. That doesn't mean that more miracles didn't happen occasionally. It doesn't mean a miracle couldn't have happened. It means these were ten ongoing, ten constant miracles. It was a place of miracles. The Maral of Prague points out that the reason that Hashem made miracles in the Beis HaMikdash was so that the Jewish people who came there should know that this is not a place like any other place. And they didn't just have to believe that God's presence was there, but they actually knew it. And they could see it, and they felt it. Or at least the symptoms of it. Because miracles were happening. So because they would see these miracles happening, because they would see that things that happen elsewhere don't happen here, that would deepen their respect and their sense of reverence for the Beis HaMikdash. The Medeshmul adds to this, and he says it's not only a question of the Jewish people being inspired by the fact that there was a Beis HaMikdash, but we see that Hashem wants to communicate that to the Jewish people, because the Mishnah begins by saying, that these miracles happened to our ancestors. Our, our Babis and Zedis, our Sabbath and Saftot, our ancestors saw these miracles. Now, what happens if a tree falls in the middle of the forest and nobody's there to hear it fall? Does it make any noise? It's one of those famous philosophical questions. And from this they infer if, if a man's wife is not there, is he wrong also? You don't, you don't like that joke. The guys all laugh. They think it's funny. <laughs> yes, definitely. On number two. How about on number one? Does the tree make noise? Yeah. The point is that the, the miracles, ostensibly, if they would happen, they would happen. Whether somebody was there to see them or not, would not change the miracle itself. But the Mishnah emphasizes that these are Saranis and Nasala that they happened to our ancestors. It wasn't just a place of miracles, it was a place in which miracles happened to our ancestors, for our ancestors, for their benefits, so that they would be able to understand and appreciate that this is a place unlike any other. The Rebbe once explained that the notion of a miracle really is the same as nature. 
everything is a miracle. Everything is, is a work of God. So if the sun rises in the morning, it's a miracle. It's an incredible thing. Anybody here seen the sunrise lately? No. It's not so early these days. You could see it. It's beautiful. So it's a, a remarkable thing. And probably... If, if, I don't see it. I also come in the dark. But uh, it used to be a few weeks ago when I was becoming... We'd see, we'd see the sun coming up. The point is, if it would happen every 500 years, you wouldn't have anybody sleeping for sunrise. Everybody would be up to see it. It would be the most amazing thing. Or if the sunrise happened just once, just once, and people happened to see it, everybody would be talking about it. It would be the most miraculous thing. So why is the sunrise not so miraculous? Why are we so busy running to work or carpool that we don't even notice the sun coming up? Because it happens every day. It happened yesterday, and in all likelihood, it's going to happen again tomorrow. It's happened for the last few thousand years. Yeah, okay. But if the clouds aren't there... <laughs> So the, 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 the point is, though, that miracles that happen on a regular basis are not seen as miraculous. Whereas something that happens in an unusual way, which seems to bend the laws of nature, always catches our attention. But in truth, it's all an, an act of God. So re- what's really the difference, intrinsically, between a miracle and between that which we call nature? The reality. The fact that we take the time to notice it. So Hashem put nature in place. And because He put nature in place, and it's a constant, it's regular, it's an ongoing, we don't stop to look. So when something happens that's unusual, who does that happen for? Or why is that taking place? Obviously to impress us. God wants us to know that He's intimately involved with creation and that He didn't put the world on autopilot. So the whole notion of a miracle is something that's done for us. For humanity or specifically for Bnei Bnei Shisrael, for Am Yisrael. Hashem does things for us. He wants us to notice those things. Some miracles are earth-shattering miracles, literally, like a sea that splits, or like a sun that stands still in the heavens. And other miracles are a remarkable string of what the world calls coincidence. But when you stand back and look at all of these little things that developed in a perfect pattern, if you contemplate and look at the timeline of history, you will have to admit that it is truly miraculous. For example, the story is told that uh, one of the French kings asked Pascal if he has any proof that there is a God. And without hesitating a moment, Pascal said, the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. The fact that the Jews still exist has to be a God. The fact that we exist defies all statistics. Nobody stops to think about that too often. But it's a reality. So that's also miraculous. And various other things that happen are miraculous because of the chances of things happening in this particular way are so remote that the fact that they happen all to be lined up is clearly indicative that the hand of God is at work. Like the creation of You could call that a miracle. If the UN has never voted since in favor of Israel, and the fact that it only once voted in favor of Israel, that happened to be the one vote that allowed Jews to establish themselves in Israel, could that not be called a miracle? And, and there are miracles that happen really every day. When I was a buffer, the Rebbe was talking about it being a year of miracles. It was tough shin The Rebbe said it was an acronym for Shnas Nisim, for a year of miracles. And I remember this very clearly, the Rebbe said it to Fabregen, that people say to him that they don't see miracles. So why does he talk about miracles when they don't see miracles? So the Rebbe said he wanted to point something out that nobody had noticed and nobody had talked about, but when thought about, it was clearly miraculous. And the story goes back to 1970. Three, Yom Kippur War. Those who remember, the French were actively aiding and abetting the Arabs in the war against Israel, and they refused to sell any warplanes to the State of Israel. Because of this, the State of Israel made a decision that it was going to make its own aircraft. Right? That was the Lavi project. And then that project got stymied in the middle. But the point is, they started to work on their own because they realized they couldn't rely on anybody else for help or for favors. And because the French were very, very helpful to the Arabs at the time, during that Yom Kippur, the Rebbe suggested that they sing the song, which the French call the Marseilles, that they sing that to the tune of HaAderes which speaks about how we give everything to God. And that became a part of the Yom Kippur service. And years afterwards, every year at Simchus they would sing HaAderes to the tune of the Marseilles. That's the story that happens. And we used to sing it all the time. Every Simchas Torah. 
why were the French helping the Arabs? Yeah. <laughs> Am I really, I really have to answer that question? Uh, huh? I don't remember. They were not selling uh, aircraft and other things that Israel needed to defend itself. They refused to sell to Israel. They didn't want it. No, they had business with the Arabs. They were selling arms to the Arabs. Anyway, that's the, a question and an issue for a, another day altogether. At any rate, the Rebbe said that nobody noticed, but immediately after Yom Kippur, there was a cultural revolution in France that year. And all of a sudden, people didn't like the song. And on the college campuses, there was mass demonstrations that the song is uh, Napoleonic, and it, 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 it says that the words to it are, are violent and, and gruesome and warmongering and bloody, and that they wanted to renounce the song. This was the national anthem, the French national anthem. And in the course of the next few months, there was such an uproar that the parliament in France formally renounced the song. It was later readopted a few years later. But they renounced the song. The Rebbe said, whoever heard in modern times that a country should renounce its national anthem? There are people who want to change the Canadian national anthem. They want to take God out of it. But nobody wants to renounce the national anthem. That's like ridiculous. How do you renounce the national anthem? Some people in Canada want to get rid of the Queen. But the national anthem... The Rebbe said, what happened? He explained that every nation on earth also has a spiritual force, a sar, a, a, a master or an angel that watches over the needs of that particular people, land and culture. So this sar of France felt that that song no longer belonged to it because the Jewish people had taken it. The Rebbe didn't say himself. The Rebbe said Jewish people had taken it and they had harnessed it for the service of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They made it a part of davening. So since they made it a part of davening, so the French people were responding to something spiritual that was going on. In the heavens, Sarah Yishol Tzorifas, that the angel of France no longer felt the song belonged to him, so he relinquished the song. So because the angel of France relinquished the song, eventually the symptoms were felt on earth, and the young people of France suddenly had this awakening. They didn't like the song. You could call it a miracle. You want to argue? You could argue. I remember at the time I was in Los Angeles and I was arguing with this very, very uh, atheistic kind of lawyer. He's a very rational guy. He didn't believe in anything and he used to put on someone only do me a favor. And I told him the story. And he said, I don't believe it. This is impossible. It's ridiculous. And then, this is before the Google days, but I came the next week. He said, you know what? I did some research. And it's true. <laughs> it's really true. And I have to admit, it is remarkable. That is something very unusual, because the timing they, they, they was, was mamish like a, a day after Yom Kippur, so the first rumblings were heard. At any rate, the point of miracles, going, going back to, to our issue at hand here, is really la veisenu, or, or lono. And the point is for us, that we should notice these miracles. So miracles happen in the Beis Amigdash, and a sum total of ten miracles happen in the Beis Amigdash. Why? For us, so that we should be moved, so that we should understand, so that we should be inspired. The Rebbe takes it further and he says, so that we should want to see a Beis Amigdash again. People say, who needs a temple? Sounds gruesome, all these sacrifices and blood, who needs it? It's a much, much prefer things the way they are now. So that's because people don't understand what a Beis Amigdash is. So when you read in the Mishnah that the Beis Amigdash is a place of miracles, and that the hand of God and the God's fingerprints were evident and felt and seen at all times, so then we have to begin to have a different appreciation and understanding of a Beis HaMikdash. And as a result, that causes us to want to see a Beis HaMikdash again. That it means God's presence is on earth. And furthermore, when we know that Hashem was so delicate with regard to the Beis HaMikdash, took such good care, and was so involved in every detail, as we will soon see, it could serve as inspiration of us to take care of our mitzvahs. To look after the details. You know, they tell a story that a rabbi got an email from somebody and uh, in the email, the person said he was very upset with this rabbi because he had sent him an email several weeks earlier and he asked him a simple question and he never got a response and he doesn't understand how busy could he be? Why can't he at least respond to him? The question was, why do mitzvahs have to focus on so many details? Why can't mitzvahs just be generally important? So the rabbi responded and he said, I responded to your email on the very day that you sent it. I'm sorry you didn't get the response. I went and looked at my sent box and I realized I forgot to put the dot before the com. So I apologize. I'll try not to miss out the dot again. And, and I, hope that, I hope that answers your question too. <laughs> so all those little details make all the difference. So armed with this information, let us approach this Mishnah and understand that we're supposed to be inspired by this and to, to uh, learn about and appreciate the Beis Amigdash. Mishnah tells us ten miracles happened in 
that special place. Of course, when the Beis Hamidrash was standing. So, 410 years, and then for 420 years, so for a sum total of 930 years, these are the miracles that happened on this place. And they are as follows. Firstly, No woman ever miscarried because of the very, very strong smell, the strong scent of the meat that was being cooked or barbecued. So the Gemara tells us that when a woman is pregnant, she could have cravings. I I, I have to tell you, the Gemara tells you, I'm sure you know that this is the case. And what brings about these cravings? Sometimes they come out of the blue, but a lot of times when you smell a certain food, that smell creates that craving. And we go so far as to say that a person, a woman is not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur if she has these cravings. Because if you don't satisfy these cravings, it can bring on labor, and it can result in the loss of a pregnancy. There's an interesting story told that there was a, a man named Elisha ben Avuya. We talked about him a few weeks ago, actually. And he became a heretic at the end of his life. He was not a good person. And the Gemara question, how did he go so wrong? How did things end up so badly for him? And one of the Gemara's answers is that the story was told that when his mother was pregnant, she walked by a non-kosher restaurant and she smelled the food and she seized the cravings and she had to eat the food in order to save the pregnancy. And that when you're dealing with a pregnancy with a person like Elisha ben Avuya, who's such a refined neshama, so even eating non-kosher food during pregnancy impacted the future of his neshama, left a stain on his soul. By the way, we have this reason we do kaparas. And nobody wants to remember right now, but only a few weeks ago was Yom Kippur. <laughs> and the night before Yom Kippur, or early in the morning, we, many of us saw the chicken over our heads. And the halacha is, or the custom is, that if somebody is pregnant, you swing not one, not two, but three. In case it's a boy or in case it's a girl. So you take two roosters and a, a two, one rooster and two hens. Why? What can the baby have done wrong? Even a baby who's born can't do an Aveda. What can a, a, a baby in, in, who's right now still in a state of gestation, what can he do wrong? So the answer that's given is perhaps his mother ate something that she shouldn't have eaten. And as a result, whatever the mother eats, the baby eats. So we want to bring about a kapara. That's why we have this notion of kapara. So the point I'm making here is that what happens during pregnancy has a direct impact on the future of the child. And that's why, in truth, when somebody is worried about the spiritual welfare of the children, you don't worry from the moment the child starts to speak. You don't worry from the moment the child starts to crawl. You don't even worry from the moment the child is born, but you're even supposed to be concerned and do special things during pregnancy. And there are, this is a, maybe a spiritual thing, but there are metaphysical examples of this. That if a, if, a, if a mother is under tremendous stress during pregnancy, it can constantly have an adverse effect on the child. If a mother listened to certain music or, or did certain things, I'm not even talking about smoking and drinking and things like that. I'm talking about more, more things which are more metaphysical, things of a, a more refined nature. It's a, a proven fact today that it can have an effect on the child. There was a study done of a pregnant woman who would listen only to classical music, and those children were more gifted, had more musical aptitude later on, when they were born. That is why pregnant women don't go to funerals. Yes, yes, yes. Because because the, in the funeral is filled with an energy of death, and the woman who is pregnant is carrying energy of life, and they're not not a good mix. Yeah, it, it could it could cause a child adversely affect the child. Yes. I take it the other way because when when a woman smells meat when she's pregnant, she like to vomit as opposed to cravings of eating it. That's how I felt when I was pregnant. Okay, so here's the thing. Actually, there are two interpretations of the Mishnah. And the second one follows what you're saying. (laughs) It's very interesting that you pointed out. This is a great way to learn the Mishnah with a group of ladies who... <laughs> so, so you can tell me say, yes, it's true what it says, but you know what? It's not what you think it is. Uh, apparently, both are true. Both are possible. The possibility of cravings can be brought about. Some some of the stench could have been like something that could make somebody vomit. This, the, well, things being burned, things being burned on the altar is not a pleasant smell. But at the same time, much of the meat was eaten, and the meat had to be eaten. It says in the Gemara which means it had to be well seasoned. And it was eaten with, with, with mustard and all kinds of other... So the meat that the Kohen would eat was actually barbecued in the base of English. And it could be it would taste very good. And it could be it smelled very good. And it could be somebody would have a craving. <laughs> and that would be a problem. Because you're not supposed to eat meat from the carbon. At any rate... Listen, not you. 
You vomited. Other people. I don't remember during the various pregnancies of life not eating anything from the barbecue. I just don't remember. I don't remember her at the barbecue. So, it depends, I guess, who we are. Right? Everybody reacts differently. The point is that the smell of flesh brings about a reaction. So, for 930 years, during the course of which time, probably tens of millions of, 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 of people and amongst them, probably millions of pregnant women passed through the base of Migdash. Remember, three times a year, everybody was supposed to be there. And there were reasons, other reasons to go to the base of Migdash. So, during all this time, in 930 years, not to have a single incident of a pregnancy that was adversely affected by a place that had such extreme smells and sights and sounds as the base of Migdash is nothing short of miraculous. So, maybe if somebody went and was pregnant didn't vomit or didn't have crepes yeah, big deal and then the next week her friend went and the same thing happened but when we talk about a record that's unbroken for 930 years then a pattern starts to emerge as nothing short of miraculous there's just no such thing no such thing go talk to uh, to the people who run the Air Canada Center and find out if ever a pregnant woman had an adverse effect to the hot dogs that were being sold over there ever in the course of 30 or 40 years. I'm sure that there's got to be a story like that. So it follows that it says that it's, it smells different or, or beautiful as opposed to a normal meat smell. But let's, let, let's, put it, let's put it this way. The, the miracle was that there was a lot of it. A lot of meat that was being barbecued and burned on a regular basis. And despite all of this, there was no reaction. I don't know if the meat smelled miraculous. But it doesn't say that. But the fact that it didn't engender any kind of response was seen as, as a, a pattern that could only be interpreted as miraculous. So that's the first miracle we talk about. The second miracle is It never ever happened that meat should go bad in the Beis HaMikdash. Some of the sacrifices were eaten for two days. Or it's two days and a night. So you could have been talking about something like 50 hours. Meat left out. There was no refrigeration in those days. 930 years. Ever. Never, ever. Barbecued and salted. Never, never, ever to go rotten. A heat wave. No, when it's cooked. Even cooked. Overnight. Not cured. Curing meat takes a long time. There was no time to cure. No, meat of the base of English was never cured. We're talking about meat that was fresh. Never, ever, in 930 years, did meat go bad. That is nothing short of miraculous. Tell me, anybody in, around this table has ever had meat go bad in them? Ever? Has there anybody who did not have meat ever go bad? We have our fancy kitchens and refrigerators. Anybody who did not have meat go bad? Bad? No. And we're not 930 years old. So, so this is a remarkable thing. And also, we have to point out, others point out, that the meat was passing from hand to hand. And the coronam did not wear gloves. So the coronam would touch the meat with her hand. Doesn't sound so sanitary, right? Somebody had to have a cold somewhere along the way. In fact, it says that the coronam used to get colds. Because there was cold. During the winter, it gets cold near Shalai. They were barefoot, running around on marble, floor, marble floor, going to a cold mikveh. I mean, uh, they had to eat a lot of meat. Because there was a mitzvah to eat this meat. Yes, maybe in the winter. How about in the summer? You ever been to Yerushalayim in the summer? It's pretty hot. And some of the sacrificial meat, by the way, was taken out of the base of because it could be eaten in the city of Yerushalayim. In fact, the carbon Pesach was something that was routinely taken out of the base of Yerushalayim. Was there never a hot Pesach night? And the meat was handled, going from hand to hand. Nobody ever had germs. No, nobody ever had meat that went bad for some. Like, that's something that doesn't make any sense. There's no way to explain a pattern like that for 930 years, and yet this is what happened. So we deem that as miraculous. Getting closer to the base of Megdash, zvuv hamit No fly was ever seen in the slaughter area of the Beis Now, has anybody ever been to a slaughterhouse? Mm-hmm. 
Not that you, not that you should want to go. Have you, has anybody ever been to an outdoor marketplace? A shuk? Flies? It's a lot of flies. I mean, it's, 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 it's just, it happens. That's the way it goes. It would be natural. Does anybody have flies in their sukkah? <laughs> Bees, insects. It's a normal thing. Blood attracts flies and insects. It's normal. It's, it's, it is inconceivable. You didn't have to wait a hundred years or fifty years or ten years or even a year not to see a fly to notice that there wasn't a miracle. If you'd come to the base of Megdash and see a slaughterhouse and not one fly there, that in and of itself is immediately a miraculous phenomenon. Because even when the cow is still alive, it's full of flies. Right. So imagine, they had these animals that ostensibly coming through. They had to be full of, 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 of fleas and, and insects. And they weren't. And, and the meat and the blood and the guts didn't cause any flies. It's a miracle. There's no way to explain something like that. Other than, this is a different kind of place. So, if, if, you're, if you're following along, you notice that there's a little bit of a, there's a sliding grade here. The first thing we talk about is a woman who was not adversely affected by a scent, by a smell that emanated from the base of English. She didn't even have to be in the base of English. She could have been on the outskirts of the base of English, on the outer courtyard of the base of English. If the smell emanated from the base of English, it didn't bring about anything negative. The second thing we're talking about is not a smell adversely affecting somebody, but meat itself. The meat itself that came from the base of English seemed to have a miraculous nature about it. That meat itself could not go bad. Thirdly, we're moving closer. Now we're talking about the Beit HaMikdash itself, that the area of scrimmage of the Beit HaMikdash, that space, no flies invaded that space. Now we're going to get even more personal. Now we're going to talk about the personage, the body of the Kohen Gadol. So the Kohen Gadol was the most important person on a day called Yom Kippur. And the Kohen Gadol, on the day of Yom Kippur, was watched by the entire Jewish people, and the services that he performed made a difference for all of us. The Kohen Gadol had many, many specific halachas that had to govern his life in order for him to be a Kohen Gadol, especially on Yom Kippur. One of them was that he had to be married. Another was that he wasn't supposed to be sleeping a whole night before. And various other details like that. Now, if the Kohen Gadol would experience a seminal omission, that he would not be fit for service in the Beis HaMikdash. And because there was always a concern that the Kohen Gadol, something might go wrong with the Kohen Gadol, including what if the Kohen Gadol dies, there was always somebody else waiting in the wings to take his place. Now the Gemara in Yuma tells us that there was a particular Yosef and Amir, I think, who did one step in. So there was once a Kohen Gadol who had to assume the role of being Kohen Gadol. I mean, uh, look at the United States. There's a president and a vice president. Some people even using that as an excuse not to vote for a president because, well, he's old and I don't like the vice president, so therefore I wouldn't vote for a president. Mm-hmm. This doesn't make so much sense to me because if you have a president with no experience or a vice president with no experience, why was the no experience of the vice president more of a concern than no experience of the guy voting for president? But at any rate, that's something, a great mystery of politics. Point being that it's only normal to have somebody waiting in the wings, especially when we have a situation that needs to be acted on now. So when you're at the, forget the World Series, if you're at any baseball game, there's always a pitcher waiting in the wings. Because if something happens to the pitcher, somebody has to step in for the pitcher. And any hockey game or any football game, there are players that are waiting to take the place just in case something goes wrong. That's the way it is. The show must go on. Things have to continue. Now, it is possible that, so, that the show should be focused on a particular individual. If something happens to that particular individual, the show won't go on. True. But the base of Migdash was not about who the coin Gadol was, but that there should be a coin Gadol. So if you came to hear a concert from a violinist or from a pianist or from a great singer and something happens to that individual, obviously the concert is off. Nobody came to listen to B-rated uh, performers. They came to hear the star. But the base of Migdash wasn't about who the Kohen Gadol was. It didn't matter who the Kohen Gadol was. As long as he met the basic requirements, there had to be a Kohen Gadol that was going to step in and serve. We couldn't take a chance on, on, on Yom Kippur. You don't take a chance on maybe you want to have a Yom Kippur this year. It had to happen. And because it had to happen, we had to have somebody waiting in the wings. Somebody would have to step in. It wasn't a choice. So because of this, a Kohen Gadol was always prepared with something called a Zgan Kohen Gadol. Now, 930 years is a long time. The Mishnah tells us that never ever did it happen that a Kohen Gadol was disqualified because of an impurity that came from his own personage. 
So an outer reason of impurity, yes, that did happen. But an impurity that should come from the personage of the Kohen Gadol, which is what a keri is, that was something that never took place. And that is seen as miraculous. That it's as if, it's a, it's a, it's a, remember that the Kohen, the, Kohen, the Kohen Gadol can be of all ages. And sometimes people get older, this is a, a thing, it's, it's just nature. This is a th- kind of th- things like this happen. So regardless of how old the Kohen Gadol was or how young the Kohen Gadol was, it didn't make a difference. The whole gamut of experience, in 930 years, never once did the Kohen Gadol have a disqualifying blemish that resulted of a keri on the day of Yom Kippur. Next miracle, now focused on the Beis Migdash fires. Fire that burned on the altar. Does anybody have an idea what the Beis Migdash looked like? Have a general idea? If you were in Sholem, you know, in Kippur, I had the diagrams that showed you where everything was. So the Beis Migdash comprised of a series of courtyards, which were open air, and then there was a building that had a roof on it. So the building with the roof had two compartments, or two important compartments. The Beis Hamikdash had a side hallways also. Those important compartments were known as the Kodesh and Kodesh HaKodesh the Holy and Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is where the Kohen Gadol went once a year that housed in the first Beis Hamikdash at least the altar, the Ark and the tablets. And outside in the area called the Kodesh we had the menorah and we had the small golden altar and the showbread, the golden table. This was enclosed. But the main Mizdeach which was, by the way, a huge, huge structure. The Mizbeach was not a little bima. People think the Mizbeach was like six feet wide. It was 32 amot by 32 amot. And amma is 18 inches. So you do the math. Forty-eight feet. It's like the size of this room. It was a very, very large structure, the Mizbeach. And on it, there was a raging fire, always. And that raging fire was burning out in the open. Now, when you're out in the open, it rains. It rained in Yerushalayim too. It rains everywhere. So if it rains and you have a fire, what usually happens? The rain puts out the fire. That's human nature. You always have stories of these brush fires in places where it never rains. It rains like three times a year in California. That's why I have all these problems of brush fire. You don't have problems like that here. It's almost always raining here. Like every two days it's raining. The one time it didn't rain, once a few years ago, I had to empty out the mixer, I had to refill it, and it didn't rain something for like 40 days in a row. I remember, it was like tearing my hair up, like, <laughs> like a, when there's no rain, you got a problem. Right, I'm between these rain water. I mean, there are solutions for places that never get rain, but that's not to be used. You could, you could take ice like from a mountain and bring it there as ice and then have it melt, but that's not the, that's not the preferred method. At any rate, the point I want to make is that rain is a natural phenomenon and heavy rains, for sure, would put out a fire. You have these torrential rains like we had last night, you know, you have like waves of rain coming down and yet, in 930 years, I'm sure there was rain in Yerushalayim and I'm sure there was rain in the base of Ignis. It rains in Yerushalayim now all the time. Never did it happen that the fire of the Mizbeach was doused by the rains that fell from the heavens. Unusual. Ah, simply miraculous. You didn't have to wait for a pattern to emerge. If you were in the middle of a torrential rainstorm and you're watching the rain come down and you see this fire, giant fire burning brightly, there's no way to explain it. That is a miracle. Furthermore, not only did the fire burn, but in the base on Migdash there was this issue made of the plume of smoke. That there was, the base of English was not filled with smoke. It was not a smoky place. When you came, you didn't have to rub your eyes. Even if it was windy, there was always a plume of smoke that was going straight up. In fact, you could see it from far away. On the mountain, you could see on the mountain of, of the Temple Mount, you would always see a plume of smoke that was going straight up. Regardless of how windy it got. And by the way, Jerusalem also sometimes gets the sandstorms. Like incredible sandstorms. You, got, you can't even imagine. I, I was living there the, when, when the sandstorm came. It's unbelievable. The whole city turns yellow, and the winds are it's like, a, like, a, like a tornado winds. Unbelievable winds. So if it happened there, and I was told by somebody that it happens in a few years, probably it happened in Yerushalayim at the time of the base of Midrash also. A wind like that is going to not just blow a, the fire, blow a fire all over the place. The whole city is filled with sand. And yet, Le Nitzcha Haruach Ashun. 
in March, when we were there in March, was very, very hazy from the sand. Okay, that could be, but was it windy then also? No. Maybe it was windy before you came. It was very, very hazy. When we were on Mount Scorpus, I couldn't see anything. Like yellow, it like a yellowish? It looked like just very dense fog, but I was told it was sand. Right, so you probably came the day after the storm. The wind brings it there. But you, you, you've been to a... You have to go back. <laughs> you had a, have you been to a campsite? You have a campfire? Yeah, it doesn't go. The, your barbecue, uh, when it gets windy, blows the smoke all over the place. The smoke is blowing in your face. Here, The wind never dislodged or moved the plume, the pillar of smoke, from the base of English. Now... The next miracle concerns different types of grain and breads that were brought in the base of English. So first and foremost, in, in any kitchen where there's food, there's food that goes bad. It's invariable. It happens. It's just the human nature. But besides food going bad in the base of English, there was another problem. And that problem could have been of a, a, a spiritual nature a disqualifying blemish. Maybe somebody impure touched it or a rodent somehow got in there and touched it. There are various things that could happen that could disqualify something from temple service. And things did all the time. In fact, there's many stories in the Gemara of what people did when they found a dead rodent or how, what to do with it when it's Shabbos. So, these are things that could happen. Yet, they noticed that there was three things that never ever went wrong. 930 years. It never happened that any of these particular items, only these three items, should have become disqualified. What is so unique about these items? So the Mishnah says, There was no psul, no disqualifying blemish in the Omer. Everybody know what an Omer is? Omer, Omer was barley that was cut, that they had to turn it later into a mincha, into a meal offering. And the Omer is the origin of the name Sfirat HaOmer. Because the Omer Karban was brought on the second day of Pesach, first day of Cholomayit, in Eretz Yisrael. And then we have a mitzvah to count 49 days from that Omer. And on the 50th day we brought a different sacrifice which is called Shtei HaLechem. The two breads, which were unusually made of chametz. Whereas the Omer obviously was matzah, it was on Pesach. But most of the meal offerings in the Beis HaMikdash were not chametz. They weren't brittle like matzah, but they weren't chametz because the process of chimots, the process of fermentation, was impeded through extreme heat. Many of them were fried. Some of them were baked. But the point is that once dough comes into contact with extreme heat, the process of rising is impeded. It can't rise afterwards. In theory, matzah doesn't have to break your teeth. In theory, matzah could be soft. It's just that the matzah we use is hard matzah for various reasons. But if you took dough... And within a minute or two of its being needed, you threw it in, made it into like a donut, fried it in oil, it would be soft, tasty, and not hummus. Because it wasn't allowed to rise. The Yemenite Jews have soft matzah. They still make soft matzah till today. In fact, I'm told, I never saw this, I'm told they have like a pika. The matzah actually is like, it has like a pocket inside so I can imagine the time of the base of English, it was a really nice sandwich. And they had this like soft matzah and they put horseradish inside and meat and lettuce. It's a great sandwich. Okay. <laughs> With the matzah it's cracking all over the place you know you're trying to figure how do you do this? Like uh, what was Hillel thinking? I have a feeling Hillel didn't have matzahs like us. Yeah that sandwich that made sense. He had matzah rolls. You could like a laffa like, like a large roll that could be soft. Yeah. Not, you're talking about something else. Matzah rolls are ground up matzah meal that look like, like bread. Right. I'm talking about a, a flat piece of dough that, that could have been fried before it became able, before it was able to rise. Right. Like, like a soft tortilla, right? So the, the, point, the point now is that the Karban HaOmer was brought up Sa'idin, was brought up barley, and the Karban Shtehalechem was brought, it was this continuum. So you started with one offering, and then at the end, on, Muhammad, on, on Shavuot, you brought the second offering with these two breads. By the way, this is one of the reasons for eating a milk meal and a, and a meat meal on Shavuot. Because then you wash twice. So you eat bread, you break bread twice, 
and that's a memory of the of shtehalechem of the sacrifice of two breads. It was it was not lechem mishnah in the base of Megiddo all the time. Two breads was a unique thing, a unique event that happened on Shabbat. And finally, lechem apanim, which is called the showbread or the bread with many faces, and there were actually 12 of those breads baked each and every single Friday, and on Shabbat afternoon, they would be placed on the golden uh, table, and the old breads from last week would be taken off. And miraculously, they were always fresh, but that's not listed as one of the miracles. So why is it that these three things, of all of the different things in the base of Migdash, that could have become disqualified, only these three things never became disqualified? What was unique about these three things? But I'm going to try to guess. There's a common denominator of these three sacrifices that nothing else has. Everything was instrumental. If it wasn't instrumental, it wouldn't be there. That's absolutely correct because the Omer had to be cut the night before. And you weren't allowed to harvest before the new carbon was brought. So you harvested only enough to be brought as a sacrifice the next day. So if you didn't have a sacrifice the next day, you couldn't go cut it again because the halacha has to be cut the night before. You were stuck. Usually in the Beis HaMikdash, we were allowed to, to cook and bake and slaughter on Shabbos if, or on Yom Tif, if that's what's required. But the carbon the halachim had to be baked ere Shavuot. That's the halacha. So that to be baked ere Shavuot, that can only be offered on Shavuot. Same thing. So what would happen if something happened, went wrong with the carbon shteh lechem? You couldn't use it. You wouldn't have a Shavuot. You wouldn't have a shteh lechem because you can't bake the bread. And finally, the lechem aponim were placed on the showbread table on Shabbos. Had to be baked before Shabbos. You're not allowed to bake it on Shabbos. So if something would go wrong with it, then the showbread would go empty of the table would go empty of its showbread. And that would be and a terrible thing. Extra no, they what didn't have extra. Be a, um, a person who was impure touched oh. it, a rodent came in contact with it, or something else like that. That never happened. Never happened in 930 years. We know that virtually everything else was disqualified at some point or another. It's human nature. Things happen, and there was always contingency plans and always uh, issues of how do you deal with when something goes wrong. Listen, we even had to prepare two corn and gedolim. You think we didn't have extra sacrifices waiting in the wings? You brought a sacrifice, no good. You bring the next one. But these were the only three things that there couldn't be a next one for. Can't be a next one. Then God makes a miracle. In other words, miracles only happen when they're needed. They're, they're an as-needed commodity. Miracles don't just happen. God doesn't just manufacture miracles for the sake of what? Make another miracle. Why not? So the... The Ram, the Benonisa says, puts it this way, says, God doesn't make miracles for no reason. Because he, he cherishes nature. God made nature. He doesn't want to break nature. So since God made nature and He cherishes nature, He doesn't just break or destroy nature for no reason. There has to be a good reason for it. So therefore, if there's no reason for the miracle, then why, why use a miracle? Then use natural means. Just to illustrate this point, there was... Um, Somebody was once asked by the Rebbe in Yechidus in, in, in a private audience about a, a very serious matter about the, the, uh, a certain person, about the nature of a certain person. So this uh, person was very uncomfortable because he figured the Rebbe knows better. The Rebbe, the Rebbe knows what the Rebbe knows. So he said to the Rebbe, like, why are you asking me this question? You know if that person is... You sh- like, you should know these things. Are right? you a Rebbe? So the Rebbe said why use mediums which are above nature when a medium of nature is available? Very interesting thing. Oh, yes, the Rebbe has insight or foresight that's supernatural, but it's not, a, it's not about the hocus pocus. The Rebbe asked him a question. Do you know the person? Yes or no? If you know the person, tell me about it. Qualified, not qualified. That was all. And now, finally, the tenth miracle, or the ninth miracle, I lost count. What number are we up to now? Uh, it's eight. It's eight. So the eighth miracle is that in the Beis Hamikdash, they would stand literally 
tag tightly packed. However, mishtachem rivachem, when they would bow down, there would be plenty of room around them. Why is this the only one that I heard of as a kid? Can't tell you why. It's probably the easiest one to. I don't know any of these. It's the easiest one to envision, seeing people when tightly packed to together, yeah. and then seeing that there's room for people is easy to envision. Mm-hmm. The other things are a little bit more esoteric. Tell somebody there was no uh, keddy to the kohen gadol. No what? Uh, there was no disqualifying blemish, no pistol to What does that mean? But a child can understand that we're packed like this. The Bartanur says that the word tzafuf comes to the word tzaf, which means to float. He says there was people, their feet didn't touch the ground. <laughs> it was so crowded that people were literally packed like sardines. And then all of a sudden, when it came time to bow down in the base of Migdash, when they coined God, would say the name of Hashem, which we do, by the way, in Shul, on Yom Kippur, and they had to bow down, everybody had room around them. So what's the reason for that miracle? Why do they have to have room around them? It doesn't just say they were able to bow. It says, Mishtachavim, not Mishtachim, but Revachim. They were able to bow with plenty of room around them. Why would there need to be a lot of room? Why couldn't it just happen? Just a little miracle. Why the added inches? Why the extra space? So the answer is that nothing happens by mistake. The Bartimaeus says, that's because when they bow down, the people would confess their sins. And it wouldn't be appropriate for somebody to hear somebody else's confessions. That's a different religion. We have another person supposed to hear your confessions. The truth is that nobody should hear your confessions. It's a chil Hashem. Why would you want to tell everybody what, what you did against God? That's only between you and God. Since it's only between you and God, so there has to be enough room that you should be able to mouth your confession, say your thing, and nobody else should be able to hear it. So therefore, the Abish should make more room. So you bowed down. Not only you had enough room physically, but you had enough room even to say what you had to say, and everybody else is out of earshot. There is no way to describe something like this. It is obviously miraculous. It didn't have to be a pattern. The moment somebody was standing like a sardine, and all of a sudden he found this room all around him, and then probably when they got up, they became packed again. That's a miracle. People would come, not by the thousands, but according to our accounts, by the millions. And the entire city of Jerusalem turned into a, I suppose, a camping ground. Like a massive refugee camp. Everybody put up a tent. And everybody was sleeping all over the place. And never once, when people are out in the wild, did it happen that somebody should be bit by a snake or a scorpion. So we all hear stories of people who are attacked by animals on camping trips. And when you sleep outside, especially in those days, there was, things could happen. And snakes and scorpions are found in that area of the country. And yet, never happened that in the city of Yerushalayim itself, that somebody received a snake bite or a scorpion bite. The whole city. You think that people have suffered a snake or scorpion bite in the city of Toronto in the last 50 years? It has to be. It's so normal. There's no city in the world where nobody never suffers a snake or scorpion bite. And here, we live, we're talking about a place where there are snakes and scorpions, and only in this city, in the city of Jerusalem, it never happened, at least when the basement leaders were standing, that a snake or a scorpion bit somebody or injured somebody. So we see here a miracle now that's going beyond the line of scrimmage of, this, of the basement leaders itself. Now it's going outside of the basement leaders. Initially, the miracles are talking about the holy artifacts, the holy foods. The miracle before, we're talking about people. Not holy, nothing holy about them. They weren't Kohanim. Regular people just came to the base of Migdash. Just ordinary men and women who came to see what was going on. Even they had room around them. Not only that, the whole city had protection as a result. And the greatest miracle of all, it never happened that one should remark to a friend, to a companion, I'm having a hard time in this city finding a place to sleep. I'm a little uncomfortable. Now, there's two, there's, two, there's two interpretations here. One is that there was nobody in Yerushalayim who was unemployed. Nobody said, I don't have pranasi here. Everybody made a living. If you lived in Jerusalem, somehow things went well. You know, in, in the city of Tzfat, they have an acronym. And it says, Parnasa, Tzara Parnasa Tamid. That prosperity is always scarce. It's known that Tzfat is not a place. Not many wealthy people living in the city of Tzfat. It's a place where people get by. But the city of Yerushalayim was a wealthy city. And it's not normal that a city should be wealthy, that nobody should be frustrated. There were no homeless. 
There was nobody who was having difficulty paying his rent. There was nobody who was having a challenge in his business. I'm not talking about during a recession or the markets melting down. At a regular time, somebody is going to having an issue. How are things? Things are not so good for me. And Yerushalayim never happened. No matter how many people lived there, there was never a time in the city, even when the population swelled, that the people would say, can't make a living here. It's not like that today. But when the Besamigdash stood, it was like that. Another interpretation is that when the people came during the Shalosh Regal, during the three festivals, they're talking about millions of people. They never ever kvetched. The Jewish people. Millions of Jews. And millions of Jews, not one of them should ever kvetch. And they had good reason to kvetch, it would seem. Because, you know, they say that guests are like, like fish. The first day they're delicious. By the third day they start smelling it. Right? Gets... So the people who were living in Yerushalayim that were all of a sudden inundated with guests weren't catching. And the people who came and were sleeping on somebody's living room floor were also not catching. How could such a thing be? It never happened. Not that somebody should lodge a complaint and should make a demonstration. He should say to a friend, you know, this is crazy. Ugh, I, can't, I can't wait till this is over. When is this holiday finishing? When are these guests getting out of the house already? Never happened. Life is great. How could such a thing be? The only way is that this was Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, the city of unity. It was a remarkable city, a remarkable place. And that's why Yerushalayim was Teotihuacan. It was the, the origin of light. It was the point that everybody looked towards. It was, it was an incredible place. The Beisam Bigdash was incredible. The city was incredible. All because Hashem's presence was amongst us. And the fact that Yerushalayim is anything but this today, this is the meaning of Galut. It's the meaning of exile. Why do we say, The city of Jerusalem should be rebuilt. If you will look at historical annals, you will see that the city of Jerusalem today is larger and more prosperous than it ever was in history. You can't even compare. We have archaeological digs. We know how big the city was. Even in its heyday, during the Herodian times, when the city was expanded, and there was an upper city, and landfill, and, and the city was, 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 uh, was, was redesigned, you cannot compare to the city of Jerusalem today. It's huge. It's a giant city. And yet, people could be standing in the King David Hotel or in the, some other palatial structure in Yerushalayim and say, Uvnei Yerushalayim, Merakadish. What are they asking for? You have a city rebuilt. I'm asking for mortar. not asking for steel. I'm asking for bricks. I'm asking for Yerushalayim. This, this city that we just talked about, that's what we're asking for. That does not exist. That's a whole different story. And that's Uvnei Yerushalayim, that the city of perfect reverence, Yerushalayim, perfect reverence for God, a city where no, no ill could happen, where nothing could go wrong, where there wasn't even a malcontent or a kvetcher. Such a thing can only be when the base of English stands. So this is supposed to inspire us to long for the coming of Mashiach, for the rebuilding of Yerushalayim, the rebuilding of the base of English. And it also should inspire us that if Hashem took such care of His city, and if his base amigdash, then we need to take care of our mitzvahs. Because you know that every one of us has a little base amigdash. So how much care are you giving to your base amigdash? How much care are you giving to your Yerushalayim? Are you, are you filling it to the things it needs to be filled with? And are you watching carefully for the things that need to be watched for? And if we will take care of our little Yerushalayim, then Hashem will hopefully soon rebuild the big Yerushalayim with the coming of Mashiach Tzadkenu, Tzimheda, Yerameinu, Amin. Now, next week we'll continue to learn this Mishnah, but this was just a facade. This was just a superficial approach, first blush of the Mishnah. Next week, Yemetz Hashem will go through the Mishnah in more detail.